Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. Today, hey, would you take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter number 11? Genesis chapter number 11. I started a sermon series a few weeks ago, and, or last week, entitled The Night Before Christmas, Why the World Needed a Savior. We're looking at the, what was going on before Christmas. Like AD 1 means in the year of our Lord. Uh, there was no AD 0 or BC 0. It went from BC 1 to AD 1. And AD 1 means in the year of our Lord. It was the line of demarcation for all of history. And AD 1 is the time when we, we, we celebrate Christ being born. There's some debate on the date or the years. Don't, don't worry about that, but just AD 1. BC was before Christ. And there's a reason we needed a savior. There was a reason we needed Christ to be born because the night before Christmas, things were dark and bleak. And when we look at why we needed a savior, look, we're not just looking at why we needed a savior 2,000 years ago. We're looking at today, why do we need Christmas today? Why do we need a savior today? And so today, I want to preach on this subject out of Genesis chapter 11, uh, Highway to Heaven. Because that's what we're dealing with in Genesis chapter 11. So we'll stand there and read in just a moment. Uh, But first, let me tell you a story. It was this past week we buried President George H.W. Bush, or 41, as he liked to be called. George Bush was the first president, sitting vice president, who became president since uh, Martin Van Buren in 1836. He's also only one other president's ever been the father of a future president, and that was John Adams and George H.W. Bush. He flew, uh, George H.W. Bush had a tremendous career. He flew 58 missions in World War II, mainly in the Pacific. He uh, received the Distinguished Medal, uh, uh, or Distinguished Flying Cross Medal. They called him Poppy. He played in the first two College World Series in baseball uh, at Yale. And so his nickname uh, all his life was Poppy. They even called him that when he played at Yale. You know, he was married to Barbara Bush for over 70 years. And he, he did these amazing things. He, he jumped out of an airplane on his 75th, 80th, 85th, and 90th birthday. That's absolutely amazing. He had an incredible career in politics. He was the director of the CIA. He was the ambassador to the United Nations. Of course, he was vice president. He was president and he was uh, the uh, father to a future president, but it almost all didn't happen. Because in World War II, when Bush was flying a combat mission, uh, he flew a torpedo bomber and he and his crew of eight were flying and dropping torpedoes on a mission in a place called Chichijima. And when he was on the way there, he got incredible aircraft fire, anti-aircraft fire hit his plane. And so his engine, he said, I saw my engines catch fire and he knew the plane was not going to stay in the air. But incredibly, H.W. finished the route and dropped his bombs in Chichijima and then turned around, started trying to make it back to the aircraft carrier, but he he knew he wasn't going to make it. So he got the place, plane in a safe position. He allowed all of his eight crew members to bail out. 
And then after they bailed out and were safe, he, the plane was then over the water and he just barely got out of the plane before it crashed into the water and he was there in the ocean. He had inflated a life raft on the way down, found it, climbed up into it. And he says by his own testimony that as he was uh, in the raft that the tide was carrying him back to Chichijima and he was afraid of being going back because he knew he'd be captured and he knew he could be brutally treated. As a matter of fact, H.W. didn't know for decades after this what happened to his eight crew members, but uh, the book Flyboys tells us when they went and dug into the history, they found out all eight were captured, some were beheaded, all of them were tortured, and, and, and the story even goes that several of the men were, were, this is horrible, but they were cooked and fed to the Japanese soldiers. And so H.W. was in the life raft, and it was drifting back to shore, and he was paddling with all of his might to stay out in a deeper part of the ocean, not wanting to get captured, when suddenly a submarine, and you see it there, rises up into the picture next to his life raft and pulls him out. I'm sure this fellow right here that pulled him out of the water had absolutely no idea who he was pulling out of the water. All he knew was it was some 20-year-old airplane pilot that he had pulled out of the water. He had no idea that not only was he saving a man from capture, not only was he saving a man from torture, not only was he saving a man from a horrible death, he was pulling out the 41st president of the United States and by proxy the 43rd president of the United States. The submarine pulled out a man from certain death certain ruin, and certain destruction. And that is a beautiful picture of what Christ did for us at Christmas. Because when Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, it was as if he reached down from heaven, picked us up out of certain death, certain ruin, certain heartache, definite bondage, definite chains, definite life of torture, and he pulled us up to safety. That's how important Christmas is. That's what Jesus did for us when he came some 2,000 years ago. So would you stand with me as we read, read in the Bibles? We honor God's word by reading it. And can we talk about what happened? Now, now understand this when I preach this series. Last week we went look back at Adam and Eve. And can I, can I say this to you about Adam and Eve? That sometimes we're kind of hard on Adam and Eve. But can we be honest can, can you agree with me? You wouldn't have done any better than Adam and Eve, right? Can you, can you say amen there? Can you agree with that? I can't resist the Snickers bar that's in my cabinet. I was going to have no luck with the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And when we get to Genesis chapter 11, and it's the story that we know as the Tower of Babel. If you don't know the story, that's okay. I'm going to tell you as we go, but... But what, what happens in Genesis 3 and what happens in Genesis 11, don't, don't get set in your mind, that is what they did. Get set in your mind, this is what I do. I'm no different than they are. So let's look in Genesis chapter 11, verse number 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had 
brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men have built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they have all one language. And this is what they begin to do. And now nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. Verse number seven, come, let us go down and there confuse their language. They may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad uh, from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, let me set the stage a little bit for where we are because we are We are after the fall of man. That's what I preached last week, Genesis chapter 3. But we're also after another event that most of you will know from your Bible. It's called the flood. It's the the time of Noah. It's when Noah and his family were put in the ark and they were saved. And there was a reason the flood came to earth. The Bible says this. And listen, this this is a pretty strong statement you need to hear today. Because the Bible said, Jesus said this about the culture of the day. Now, now, I don't know that Jesus was talking about individual hearts. I don't know that he was talking about your heart and my heart, but he, he may have been in, in Genesis. But here's what we know, that it was an indictment on the culture of the day because here's what Jesus said right before the flood. He said, I'm going to destroy man. It repent, it, I'm repentant that I made man. I hate that I made man, and this is what they've turned into. Why, God? Why do you hate that you made man? Because here's what he said. Their hearts are on evil. Continually. That was the culture of the day in the book of Genesis. So that sin had taken root in Genesis chapter 3 and it had just blossomed. And by the time we get to the time of the flood, God is grieved that he's even made man. And so he said, because their hearts are on evil continually. And what's happened is this now, when we get to Genesis chapter 11, we're only about 100 years from the flood. It's only been 100 years they know the story well. They, many of them have talked to Noah. They've talked to their sons. They're rela- they know the story well. In a hundred years, after a time of grace and repentance, they've already forgotten. But can tell us a little bit the way we are too? I mean, before I, I come down hard on this group in Genesis chapter 11, know this that we tend to receive the blessings of the Lord on a daily basis. We get the blessings of the Lord in our lives. God does great things for us, and how quickly we forget where they come from. We forget where they from come from, and God disciplines us. When God disciplines us, we repent. We, give our, we, go, we turn back to God, and we thank God for his blessings. And listen, it only takes a little while. We forget the chastening of the Lord. It's the story of the Bible. The story when we get to Genesis chapter 11, and can we be honest, it's, it's your story and it's my story as well that we just forget. We forget. We wander away from a loving God. We wander away from the blessings of God. And when we get to Genesis chapter 11, we find a group of people that have forgotten about God. And their hearts are not on evil continually. Their hearts are on themselves continually. And they're building a great tower called the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel is the reminder of why we needed Christmas. 
I want to make three statements today about this Tower of Babel and what it represented. And I just want to apply them to our lives today because it applied then in Genesis 11. It applied 2,000 years ago when Christ came to earth. And it applies today in your life as well. Here, here's what was going on. Number one was this. We needed a Christmas. We needed a Savior because our kingdom gets in the way of his kingdom. Now, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, uh, you, you got to look in Genesis chapter 11 and look at how, what he said. Look at what the people said. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. I mean, we are a hundred years past the flood, past the judgment of God. I mean, it, in, in, in human history, it has just happened. And here we find men, they are totally consumed with themselves. They are consumed with making a name for themselves. They are consumed with building something for themselves. As a matter of fact, when you get to verse four, it is all about them. And mankind has reached a place a hundred years after the flood that all they can do is think about themselves. All they can do is build something for themselves. And they are so focused on living the here and now. They've forgotten there's a God. They have forgotten that there is another world to come. They have forgotten that there's another kingdom to live for. They have forgotten that there's a higher purpose for their lives. And I want to say that's not just the story of Genesis chapter 11. That is the story of all of time. And that is your story and my story that we get so focused on our kingdom. We tend to forget that this life is just temporary. We tend to forget that we put so much work and effort into building this world. We put so many resources into this world. We forget this world is going to pass away. That's why we had to have a Savior. The reason we had to have Christmas is because Jesus came to remind us he was God in the flesh. He was the incarnation of God. And the Christmas reminds us that there is a God. And listen, if all you get concerned about is building your kingdom here, you are sinking your life and resources into a really bad investment. Because everything you put into this world is not going to last. I saw this news story this week and it reminded me of us. This van was pulled over on I-93 in New Hampshire by the New Hampshire police. And I want to be honest, I got mad props for this guy right here that packed this. If you can see that on the screen up there. Let me, let me tell you some of what was just on top of the van. The police said there was so much, but there were multiple pieces of furniture. A bicycle, you see it at top. A shovel. A, sh a shopping cart. Why is there a shopping cart on the van? There's a ladder. And right here there's a 32-inch television. But at least they're neat. They kept the box for it and uh, packed it on there. The New Hampshire police posted the photo to their Facebook page and said they had to have the car impounded because it represented a potential accident. Here's this guy. Man, again, I got mad props. I would love to hire this guy when I'm trying to pack my family for vacation, man. This would be awesome, right? But I got mad props for him. But here, this, this picture is your average person in the room. 
Oh, we're not packing our minivan full of stuff, but here's what we're doing. We're packing this life full of stuff. It's about our kingdom. It's all about what we can amass and what we can pile on and what we can pack up. And we're riding around this world building our kingdom and we got a bunch of stuff piled up. But listen, I'm gonna tell you, the police took his van away. And I wanna tell you in the end, someone is going to take your stuff away. You say, well, preacher, I'm gonna leave it to my kids and your kids are gonna blow it. We don't do well with that. And if your kids do well with it, they'll leave it to their grandkids and your grandkids are gonna blow it. I'm telling you, somewhere on down the line, somebody is gonna forget you left them anything. Why? This world is only temporary. This world is not gonna last. And God has not called us to come along and pack up our kingdom full of stuff in this world. But we do it. And that's why we need a Christmas. That's why we needed the incarnation of God. That's why we needed God to come to earth. Why? Because if we're not careful, we'll forget there even is a God. If we're not careful, we'll forget there, e there even is an eternity that you're going to live forever somewhere, either in heaven or in hell. We forget that there's a judgment the Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed the man wants to die. And after this, the judgment. And after every one of us die, we are going to stand before the Lord. And if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're going to stand before God. He's going to only ask you one question. He's going to ask you, what did you do with my son Jesus? And if you did not accept him as the Lord and Savior of your life, you are not going to go to heaven. Uh, for all of eternity, you're going to a place called hell. But can I tell you this? If you're here today and you're a child of God, you're, the Bible says that we are going to give an account for how we live this life. The Bible says every idle word. The Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. That's you, that's me. And can I tell you this, when you're only focused on now, you make eternal mistakes. When you're only focused on your kingdom, you're going to make eternal mistakes. When you're only focused on this world, you're going to make mistakes that cost you for all of eternity. So you have to ask yourself, what are you investing in? What are you living for? Are you spending too much time building a city for yourself? Are you build, spending too much time building a kingdom for yourself? Because our kingdom gets in the way of his kingdom. And Christmas was a reminder it's not all about you. It's not all about me. It's all about him. That there is a God, there is an eternity, and there's a judgment coming one day. Second thing the, the uh, story of the Tower of Bible tells us is number two, we think good enough is good enough to get to heaven. I want to spend a little time here because this brings us to the tower. It was the most it was the most prominent building in the early temple complex. This tower that was built was called a, a, a ziggurat. And so here's a, here's a visual representation of it. It's, whenever you see one, it's always described as with its head in the heavens. We know a few things about the ziggurat. For we know it kind of resembles a pyramid, but its function is nothing like a pyramid. Inside a pyramid, it would be empty and there would be rooms inside a pyramid. The ziggurat is, is built on clay. It's built on dirt. It's built on on earth and that is solid dirt under there and they 
shape it and form it out of the dirt. And then they, they build it with rock and with bricks and with mortar and, and all that. The Bible talks about that. So it's, it's, it's different. This is, this is solid building. There's nothing on the inside of it. Archaeologists have discovered about 30 of these in the Mesopotamian region. And the, the main architectural uh, feature is a stairway. And I'll, I'll tell you about that in, in just a moment. But uh, they've discovered 30 and there's even more of those. Now, what you would find is in in a major city back in the day, you would have the patron deity would have one of these in the city. And then when I talk about gods, I'm using a little g, not the god, but uh, the gods they worshiped of the day. And some of the other deities may have a, a smaller one of these, but even one god may have one of these in multiple cities. It was completely off limits to any kind of profane use. And at the very top of it, this was a small room, but there would be a table and a bed in it, a table that would have food and drink on it in a bed in case the God needed to get some rest and he was tired when he got there. There would, there would be a temple over here beside it and that's where they would worship the deity was in the temple. They, they did not worship here. As a matter of fact, this ziggurat was not for man's use necessarily. You say, what was it used for? Well, we, we get what they're used for from the names of them. For example, uh, that we found one at Babylon and the name meant temple of the foundation of heaven and earth. There was one found in the city of Larsa. Its name meant temple, which links heaven and earth. The most significant one is in a city named Sopper, and the name was Temple of the Stairway to Pure Heaven. So this entire... Oh, Denny, I did that. Unplug me if you can come plug me back up. Oh, there it is. It came on. So this entire facility was one thing. See this? All the ziggurat was was an enormous stairway. And it was believed that the gods traveling between heaven and earth and the netherworld would land at the top. That's why they built it as high as they could. And he would stop in his little resting room and rest. And then he would walk down the stairs. It was literally the stairway to heaven. It was literally their highway to heaven. It was the way of connecting with God in their own terms. Or in short, it was their way of getting to heaven. They called it their stairway to heaven. And so in Genesis chapter 11, they built their method of salvation. They built their stairway to heaven. They built their highway to eternal life. They had abandoned everything God had told them. And they said, hey, we've got this God. Can I tell you, that's why we needed Christmas because that is what we always do. And I hate to say it, but there are people in this room doing it now because Christmas reminds us that no matter how tall your stairway, no matter how shiny, no matter how moral, no matter how good it may be, that you're, you are never good enough to get to heaven. And we tend to think that if we can be good enough, we can be good enough to get there. But you can't be because when Jesus came uh, and was born 2,000 years ago, he was born into a religious society that the Pharisees and the Sadducees existed. And they had over 600 moral thou shalt and thou shalt nots. And here's what they believed. If you just kept all of the thou shalt and thou shalt nots, here's what they believed get it, you'd be good enough to go to heaven. That's what they thought. 
And Jesus came down and said, listen, your good enough is not good enough to get to heaven. You can try as hard as you want, but your, your good enough is never going to get you there. And by the way, can I say this, and I can say it kindly, you're not smart enough to even know what good enough he is. I can prove it to you. Studies show people care, exaggerate their own positive uh, characteristics. It's, called, it's a condition called illusory superiority. That is, you have the illusion you're better than everybody else at a particular task. For example, most people, or almost all people, when rating their driving ability, say they are a better driver than other people are. Have you been on the highway right recently? I know nobody else is a better, because there's all a bunch of idiots on the road except for me. I know that. I'm just joking. Nobody get offended. But. So recently, a, t- a team of British researchers wanted to put it to test, and so they went to a prison, and they did surveys among prisoners. And they asked prisoners if they were, how they compared to the rest of the prison population. And so every prisoner they asked, they were in prison for either an act of violence or robbery. Now, so they gave them a test, and let me tell you what the prisoner said on the test. Compared with the average prisoner, convicts rated themselves as more moral, more kind, more self-controlled, more law-abiding, more compassionate, more generous, more dependable, more trustworthy, and more honest than every other prisoner in the system. I'm the best convict there is. So then they asked them to rate themselves compared to the average person not in prison. And the prisoners rated themselves above average on morality, kindness, self-control, compassion, generosity, dependability, trustworthiness, and honest. They were comparing them to you and they said they're better than you are. The only area they did not rate themselves as superior to you was in the area of law abiding. And get this, they rated themselves equal. The guy in prison said he was equal to the law abiding stature of the guy not in prison. Can I just tell you this? We are not good judges of our own moral character. That's why good enough is not good enough. That's why Christmas is the reminder. Listen, you say, what do you mean, preacher? Here's why. If we, if good enough was good enough to get to heaven, listen, Jesus would not have came and died for our sins. It'd be ridiculous. If every religion led to heaven, then Jesus would not have needed to have died for our sins. If every stairway we can build leads to heaven, then Jesus would not have had to have died for our sins. No, Christmas is a reminder that good enough is not good enough to get to heaven. And there are some of you here today and you are building your own highway to heaven. You are building your own stairway to heaven and here's what you've got. You say, preacher, I got a book full of good things I have done. I've been a good moral person. I've treated my fellow man better than most. I've tried to live by the golden rule and I want to celebrate everything you've done. It's just not good enough to get you to heaven. There's some of you who say, preacher, 
I've been a member of this church for 50 years. Or preacher, I've been a member of 50 churches in the past year, whatever it may be. God's not calling the church roll in heaven. It's good enough. It's not good enough to get to heaven. Preacher, you don't know what I do. I give when the offering plate comes by. I help out with the kids and the teens and the choir and I do all this stuff. Listen, that is all commendable. But good enough will never get you into heaven. Christmas was the reminder that it took Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so we could be saved. And that leads me to the third thing we learned from the Tower of Babel and why we needed Christmas. Number three, we learned God may have to shake things up in order to get us looking up. God may have to shake things up in order to get us looking up. Here's the story, verse six, and the Lord said, indeed, the people are all are one and they have one language and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing they will purpose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so they won't understand one another's speech. God saw that man could not get his mind off of himself. The whole earth, because we're just 100 years from the flood, the whole earth was one language and it caused them to depend on each other more than God. They were a technologically advanced society. When we unearth a ziggurat, it is amazing how they were built. It was an architectural marvel that they compensated for things like evaporation and, and moisture and rain and how they build it and found out it's a technological marvel. And so here they are in Genesis chapter 11, a very technologically advanced civilization. And they've kind of looked at God and they said, we don't need you anymore. Like we've got our gods that we've made up, we're going to worship them. And not only that, we're so smart, we're so advanced, we've kind of grown beyond the need for God. And so they built the Tower of Babel, and God came down and said, well, I, you know what? You, you may think that, but see if you can figure this out. And he changed the languages. I don't know how God done it. I, I wish I'd like to know because, it, it, you know, the conventional thinking is that God broke tribes off and changed it. But maybe he didn't. Maybe you came home and your kid was speaking Spanish when you got home, and you'd never heard of Spanish and you were like, well, God, I really want the other one not to. And I like this one, but what about the other one? I, was the one I, wanted. I don't know how he did it. There's a play on words there. The Hebrew word for confusion is the word belial. Now, now, to get, tell you a little bit about that word, the word belial is the root word in the word barbarians because a few hundred years ago, the word barbarians meant anyone who didn't speak our language. That's why if you read older history, they'll talk about the barbarians of the East or the barbarians of the West. They didn't mean they were barbarous in the way we would describe it today. It just meant they didn't speak our language. And God takes this word belial and he does a word play on it. He calls it the Tower of Babel because to the Babylonians, the, the name Babylonia meant the gate of the gods. So they had the gate of the gods and God said, watch this, I'm just going to change all your language and I'm going to call it the gate of confusion. And at the Tower of Babel, which is where we get our turn babbling from today, some language we don't understand, at the Tower of Babel, it's the Hebrew root word, Belial, and God confused everything. Why would God do that? Because in order to get them depending, to quit depending on themselves and start depending on God, God had to shake things up. Or they were never going to look up. 
Can I tell you that's exactly why we need Christmas? Because God sent Jesus to a self-righteous crowd that said, hey, we've got our hundreds of thou shouts and we've got our hundreds of thou shalt nots. And if we'll just stay in here and do our best, then we're going to be fine. And who really needs God? And I'm going to tell you, you can kind of get in a rut in your Christian life as well where things are going well. God's blessing your life. And we almost, we won't say it out loud, but we have it in our living and we have it in our heart. I'm doing pretty good. Look at all I'm doing. And God, at that very moment in your life, you'll come in and shake things up to get you looking up because when something gets broken beyond repair, it causes us to look somewhere else for the answer. A couple years ago, we, not a couple years ago, a few years ago, we bought our Bought a house, and it was the first time we ever had a garbage disposal. Now, it may not seem like a big deal to you. Some of you may have for 20 years, but when a, when a man gets a garbage disposal, it's like building a fire. It's like, honey, watch this. And you put celery. He goes, she you open the refrigerator one day. All the vegetables were gone. I'm like, I don't know. I must have ate them all. But it's so fun just put them down through the thing. Take the neighbor's cat. and No, I didn't do that. I, didn't really, I didn't do that. I promise I didn't do that. That's wrong. Don't do that. Don't do that. But that's ground everything up in it. She'd be like, you want to carry that outside? I'm like, no, man, put it down that hole. And one day I put something down the hole that uh, it, it grounded up. But I was about to go catch a plane. And Sherry says, hey, the garbage disposal is not working to me. That's like, that's like a color television at this point. I want that thing working. And so I said, uh, well, let me, let me, I'll fix it. <laughs> so I crawled under there and I do what men do and. I jiggled a wire and hit it with a hammer, came back up and said, I, it's, I think the engine is out of it or something. I don't know. It doesn't work. I said, probably can't be fixed. I said, but I'm about to go catch a plane. Why don't you just call a plumber, have them come out and look at it because they may have to replace it, I'm sure, because I did everything, humanly speaking, you could do down there. And so uh, let's, just, let's just get a, a professional to look at it. I go jump on my plane. I land in my city. I do my stuff that night. I go back to the hotel and I call my wife and I said, she said, hey, I want you to know I got the... Uh, I got the garbage disposal fixed, and I said, um, uh, oh, great. I said, uh, what, how much did it cost? And she said, it, it, was, a, it was $100. I said, what did they do, replace some motor or something in it? Or replace? She said, no, no. He hit the reset button. <laughs> Anybody could have done that. I mean... Well, I have a couple of questions. If something has a reset button on it, doesn't it need to be big and very visible when it has a reset button on it? Because like I, I'd hit the reset button. If there's a reset button, I would have hit it. I love it when you call the, the your, your cell phone's not working. You know, you call AT&T and they said, have you restarted your phone? Yeah, honey, I did that about 40 uh, hours ago. I, I'm not calling you because I need to restart my phone. And some of you are probably like, oh, you can restart your phone. Yeah, that, that'll fix most everything. But if there's a reset button, just make it really big and put it on the front. That's my first question. My second question is, uh, why did it cost $100? She said, Joel, he was very apologetic. He said he hated to charge me, charge me but the comp company had a minimum $99 fee for a house call. Now, if he had replaced the garbage disposal, that $99 would have went towards it, but since all he did was hit the reset button. Then uh, uh, he had to charge me the full hundred dollars to hit the reset button. And and now I know. Now I know. Once you've been embarrassed one time, you look for reset buttons on things, right? 
And say, why do you tell us that story? Because when something gets broken beyond your ability to repair, it causes you to look somewhere else to find somebody who can help you do the repair. And can I tell you that in your life, sometimes you get so dependent on you. Sometimes you get so dependent on your ability. Sometimes it's all about you. And you know what God will do in your life? God will come down and he'll mess up the garbage disposal of your life. He'll mess up the, the continuity of my life. God will come down and listen, he'll break something in your life. He'll, he'll make life hard. And you'll say, why would he do that? Because God knows your life needs a reset button hit on it. And you're never going to do it as long as everything's working fine. And so he came down to the Tower of Babel. He confounded their uh, language so man would look up instead of in. He sent Jesus to a time of religion when all the religion was about my, what man can do and religion need to hit a reset button on its life. And I want to tell you that he'll do the same thing in yours, that God has a way of shaking your life up. Can I tell you this? God and only God knows what can get your attention. You close your Bibles and just let me talk for 30 more seconds. You may be here today and you're thinking, why is my life so hard? Why is everything not going my way? Why does it seem like everywhere I turn, it seems like God is fighting against me? Now, listen, I, I don't know your situation. Even if I did, I don't want to speak on behalf of God. But can I tell you this? When it's, life seems so hard, can I tell you this? Just stop and ask. God, does my are you trying to hit the reset button in my life? Are you trying to get my attention? We needed Christmas and a Savior because God was trying to get the attention of the world. But he'll do the same thing in your life and mine. I'm not saying every heartache is that. I'm not saying all trouble is that. I'm not saying all hardship is that. But I'm saying that stop and ask the question. It could be that your hands and your feet have not wandered away from God. It could be that your heart has. Could be your hands have. Could be your, your feet have. It could be your wallet has. It could be that your, your passion has. There's a lot that could wander away from God. You know, when you're married and you have kids... You know, your spouse knows the buttons to push. My wife and I, when we first got married, we have some topics that were off limits for discussion. Because we weren't mature enough yet to discuss them, and we called it an instant fight. If it got brought up, it turned into an argument immediately. So we just determined, let's stay away from instant fight subjects, because sometimes your spouse knows your buttons. Your kids know your buttons, don't they? It's nothing like God. God's not trying to aggravate you or make you mad. God's trying to get your attention. And God's trying to say to you, hey, 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 quit looking in. Let's start looking up. Sometimes God will shake things up in your life to get you looking up. Christmas tells us that. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, do you know what my prayer always is for someone who is not saved. Now listen, now, let me explain what not saved means. Not saved means that if you die, you're going to spend eternity in a place called hell. 
You say, well, that's kind of brutal. No, that's the most loving thing I can tell you. And so you know what my prayer for people who aren't saved is? I don't want to upset you. You know what my prayer is? God, make them miserable. I don't want you happy if you're lost. Because if you're happy, you tend not to look up to God. I want God to shake the world up so you'll look up and be saved. If you're here today, you don't know Jesus is Savior. Listen, you, you might just pay attention. God could be shaking your world up to get you to look up. You stand with me with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, you can take care of that just now. God has so moved upon your heart and your mind today that you say, Preacher, I'd like to become a Christian. I'd like to know that if I die, Christ is in my life and heaven is my home. You can do that just now. We can celebrate that with you. You can pray right where you are. Now, the prayer doesn't even save you. It's the intent of your heart to trust Jesus and follow him with your life. But I'll help you pray. Prayer is how you communicate that. So if our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, nobody's looking around. If you'd like to become a Christian, he, he, pray this prayer with me. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I know that I can't save myself. I know that I can't be good enough to get to heaven. But I know that Christ came, died on the cross for my sins, rose again the third day. And just now, I invite Christ into my life to forgive me of my sins and to give me a home in heaven. I trust Jesus and Jesus alone. Listen, if you just prayed that prayer, it's not the prayer that saves you, but the intent of your heart is to trust Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. If you prayed that prayer and meant that prayer, then you have passed from death unto life, the Bible says. You are born again. And listen, the first thing you've got to do is tell somebody that. And I'm going to give you a couple ways to do it. One, you can take. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week, helping you to apply God's Word to your daily life. For more information about Peavine, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.peavine.org. Thanks for listening.